Good morning, everyone. So let's let's go ahead and open up uh, God's Word. Um, I'd like to go to Psalm two, well-known passage, and very appropriate for this morning's topic. I'd like to begin reading with verse one and read through verse six. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this passage confirms the fact that there is a plot, a conspiracy, if you will, against the Lord and his anointed one. It tells us that right here. It also reminds us that God is much more powerful and will have the final say. Now let's turn over to Ephesians 6, and this passage was already read at the outset, but I want to I go through it again, beginning with verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, this passage clearly reveals that the conspiracy is headed by the devil and that it is spiritual in nature. The moment we are born, we enter into a spiritual battle. And it won't be over until the day we die and graduate to heaven or until the Lord returns, whichever comes first. This is the very nature of our existence on this fallen planet. This great conspiracy, as I've titled this morning's message, began even before the creation of man. Lucifer, God's most beautiful angel, did not like the way God was ruling heaven and thus decided that he wanted to be God. And that was the beginning of of all of this. Of course, we know that God... Uh, parted ways with Lucifer, and one-third of the angels who rebelled against God with him. And this, this was a big deal. A third of the angels with Lucifer rebelled against God and were cast out. Well, over time, we know that God created man and gave man free reign of the garden, a perfect creation that God had given to man to live within, but there was one restriction, do not eat of this fruit. But who came along and tempted man? It was Satan in the form of a serpent, and um, he presented it in his own crafty way, this temptation, and so Eve partook of the fruit, as did Adam, and sin entered mankind, and it would change everything. Adam and Eve, as a result, were cast out of the garden. And over time, their offspring, things didn't get better. They actually went into a downward spiral. And over a period of time, things became utterly occult-ridden, demonic, on planet Earth to the point where God had to intervene. 
In fact, things got to the point where some of the fallen angels violated God's order of creation and they actually came to the earth and had relations with human women. And that's recorded in Genesis chapter 6. And as a result, there ended up being a part human, part fallen angel offspring, a hybrid. They were known as the Nephilim. In the King James Version, they're referred to as sons of God, meaning they were supernatural beings. And this is the last event recorded in the Bible before God sent the flood. So this clearly was not a good development in God's eyes. In fact, the Bible says that at this point, man was continuously evil, doing evil all the time. And so God had to intervene. And uh, it also says in Genesis 6 that God was grieved that he had made man. And that's quite a statement. Uh, Things went so awry. And so God took Noah and his family who had remained uh, pure. They were not perfect beings, but they pursued righteousness in God. And the rest of the world was wiped out because it had been completely corrupted with sin and also this, uh, I believe, this DNA from these fallen angels. And... God chose to start from scratch with just Noah and his family. Now, you know how hard that must have been for God to do that? This was his creation that he had to destroy and start from scratch. Well, after the flood, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so Noah and his family, they did. But after just a few hundred years, it wasn't very long, and we're now at the point of the building of the Tower of Babel where man again had become very evil. Nimrod was leading mankind in a type of rebellion. He wanted to unify the known world at that time under one system, unify together in a form of occult worship. And so he led them in the building of the Tower of Babel, which was actually a type of ancient ziggurat. There's still some that exist in the east, uh, so you can kind of get an idea of what the Tower of Babel may have looked like. It would have been on a much larger scale than the ones uh, left standing today. But these were um, ancient occult worship towers where occultic high priests would sacrifice and, and reach out to their demon gods, these fallen angel uh, creatures. And so God intervened, and he caused confusion and gave people different languages and spread them out, some going to the east, some to the north, some to the west, some to the south. And this move by God did not totally stop the progression of the occult but it did slow it down some. Uh, Had he not done that, there would have been a type of world government of the known world at that time under Nimrod, which was not a good thing. And so God intervened. God is in favor of unity based on truth, but not unity based upon falsehood and and evil and and lies. And that was the problem with what Nimrod uh, was doing. So we had the human population spread out, And within one to 200 years after that, we have recorded in history various civilizations that sprang up. In Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, of course, that was the area of Babylon. There remained a core group there, but spreading out from there, going to the east, uh, there was the area of Persia, and eventually uh, India, uh, further east, and then China, And to the west, you had Egypt and uh, the Upper Nile region, also parts of northern Africa, southeastern Europe. In all these areas, you had civilizations that sprang up. And guess what? They all believed pretty much the same thing. The only difference was they spoke different languages now. So they had different names for their demon gods, but the concepts were virtually identical everywhere. Uh, for example, <clears throat> uh, moving toward the east, uh, in Persia, you had a, a, a priesthood develop over the people known as the, the Brahmins. They eventually went into India, and the religion there became known as Brahmanism and eventually Hinduism. Hinduism of today is the oldest uh, existing mystery religion. It's about 4,000 years old. It goes way back. 
And going west toward Egypt, you had similar religious uh, beliefs. You had an occult priesthood. There was always this occult priesthood. And these priests had special secret knowledge, ways of uh, opening up a channel to the realm of, of the occult and communicating with these demon gods. They would go into altered states of consciousness. And this opens up the gateway to the occult. And they would communicate with these beings and receive special, special knowledge. And there was always a, a certain amount of power that went along with this. Fast forward a little bit. You know, in the days of Moses, when Moses went before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's court was able to do certain miracles, remember? But then Moses came back and did miracles, and eventually his miracles performed by the power of God overpowered Pharaoh. But there was some power associated with the occult. And that's how these ancient priesthoods were able to rule over the people. They said, we have this secret knowledge, we're superior to you, and you better listen to us or else. You better worship these, these demon gods. I know I used to think, how could people have been so stupid and worship a stone statue? Well, they weren't really worshiping that idol or statue. They were worshiping the image of the demon god that it represented, they believed there was power associated uh, with this. And so whether these idols were made out of, uh, out of stone or wood or eventually uh, copper or whatever, the concept was the same. They represented these demonic beings that the high priests, these occult priests, uh, were loyal to. And through this, they subjugated, tried to subjugate the entire uh, world, whether it was in Egypt through the Egyptian mysteries or, or in Persia, Babylon, India, Assyria, uh, whatever. Uh, also, Satan is an imitator. Uh, he came up with a type of, of fake uh, trinity, if you will. In India, you had Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. In Egypt, you had Horus, Isis, and Osiris, and there was also the same goddess worship. Um, in ancient Babylon, you had Semiramis and Ishtar. In Egypt, Isis. In, in uh, Greece, later on, Diana. In Rome, Sybil. All the same concepts. And there was a, a heavy uh, dose of, of pantheism mixed with polytheism in all of this. Again, very similar to what you see in India today, except with a, a ruling priesthood over, over all of this. And so things again got to the point where great evil uh, covered the earth, and this brings us to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at that time, God chose to pull Abraham and his family out of that situation, and of course Lot as, as, as well. And he promised, he covenanted with Abraham that he would make out of him a great nation. And he would use Abraham and his offspring to raise a standard to the rest of this, what had become once again a very dark world. And so... Uh, you know the story. Uh, ultimately, Abraham's uh, descendants, after a few generations, uh, ended up in Egypt, where they multiplied in number, and after a few hundred years, there were at least a couple million of them. God brought them out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land. And from that point forward, God would use the nation Israel to be his standard in the world, to combat evil and to go against those things that were not of God. Now, we know that Israel had its share of ups and downs, right? Uh, times where Israel would be obedient to God and God would just in, prosper Israel incredibly to the point where her enemies would be afraid of messing with Israel. Then other times where they became entrenched in these very mystery religions that God had called them out of. And God would warn them over and over by sending a steady stream of prophets. Sometimes they'd repent and pull back a bit. Other times they'd keep moving forward with this evil. And as a result, God would remove his protective covering and they'd be taken captive by their very enemies. And of course, that happened to the northern kingdom first. 
uh, taken uh, captive by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom uh, taken captive uh, into Babylon uh, for 70 years. And it was around that time, as best as I could tell from my research uh, of, of the history of, of occultism, when uh, uh, an oral tradition began among the Jews that became known as Kabbalism. I'm curious, how many of you have heard of that? Kabbalism? Quite a few of you. What Kabbalism was, was an occult explanation of history geared specifically toward the Jewish people to try to trip them up. Kabbalism basically was, it represented the teachings of the ancient occult mystery religions, but with a, a Jewish top dressing to it. So Moses, for example, rather than being the prophet that he was and, and uh, the lawgiver uh, to the Jewish people, uh, in Kabbalism, he was an initiated occult adept who had received all the higher occult teachings of Egypt and who uh, was to introduce the Israelites into these teachings to bring them up to par with the Egyptians. Uh, the building of the Tower of Babel. According to Kabbalism, this was a good event, unifying mankind, and they wanted to get mankind back to that point again. So they took a lot of the same events and characters of Scripture, but gave them a completely different meaning, turning truth on its head. That's what Kabbalism did. That's an oversimplification, but that's all I have time to, to, to go into. But there's a lot of, of pantheism uh, mixed in with that, blended in, very similar to Eastern mysticism of, of today. Well, so many Jews stayed in Babylon. In fact, well, there's some discrepancy here among researchers, but it's believed that anywhere from 20% to about 35% of Jews returned back to the promised land from Babylon. Most people would say about 25%. Um, and they came back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the city, uh, but the vast majority of Jews stayed behind in Babylon and from there spread out uh, across the world. And so a few hundred years later, of course, we have the time of Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus, stepping into the, the human realm and living a perfect life, shedding his blood on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead and conquering death. And this changed everything. How was Satan going to try to overcome that? You know, he had a degree of success penetrating the Jewish people with false teachings, but there was always a remnant that stayed faithful and who believed. But now that, that the risen Christ would have to be dealt with, as this gospel message began to spread uh, to different parts of the world, well, that's when Gnosticism was born. I want to pause there for a moment and, and share a little bit more about how the gospel spread. Going toward the east, to a large degree, the gospel fell on deaf ears, and a lot of the messengers were killed instantly. It was like a wall that was there. So strong was these occult teachings were so entrenched. But going west and a, and a bit to the north, uh, throughout the Mediterranean area, the gospel was received, and it spread like wildfire. And despite the persecution and everything that the early church faced, it continued to spread. But who were the main enemies of the Apostle Paul and the, the early church? The Gnostics, right? So what was Gnosticism? It built on the foundation of Kabbalism, but changed the real meaning the real meaning of Jesus Christ and who he was, and taught that we, we, can, we can all become Christ. We can become his gods. Again, it was, there were elements of, of um, pantheism and just false teachings overall, but ultimately very steeped in the occult. And um, Gnosticism really gained a foothold, especially in the Slavic countries of today going north. And uh, numerous secret societies that were rooted in the Gnostics, in Gnosticism, 
sprang up. Eventually you had the, the Bogomils, the Manichaeans, and a number of other groups, and I covered these in, in my book, The New World Religion, and go quite, into quite a bit of, of detail on those Gnostic sects. They were the early secret societies. But something else took place that's interesting. Because of the light of the gospel, the truth that was shown into this dark world, the high priests of the ancient mystery religions of Egypt and Greece and Rome, they were exposed for what they were. So over time, they were forced underground. And they came into and joined into these secret societies, these Gnostic groups. So it was a combination of um, early occultists who rejected the gospel mixed with the, the occult high priests of these ancient mystery religions that formed your early secret societies, which were basically just a continuation of the occult priesthoods of the ancient mystery religions. And so every, every time uh, God intervened in the affairs of mankind, Satan came back and tried to do something to counter that. This is going back and forth uh, throughout history. And so... Let me jump forward a a few hundred years to the time of Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor. By around 300 AD, the time of Constantine, Christianity had flourished. And he realized, we're not going to control these Christians. Uh, it's, It's gotten to be too difficult. And so he did something very smart from his standpoint. He, he tried to politicize Christianity, saying, I'm going to take uh, some Christians into some key positions within my government. I'm going to consolidate uh, the Roman Empire and Christianize it, Christianize it. But along with certain Christian teachings that were kept, there are also occultic ideas that came in with that. So it produced a type of hybrid Christianity, not true Christianity. And your true Christians, even under Constantine, there was an element of persecution uh, that continued to exist there. Um, Jumping ahead, everything I'm sharing this morning is a little bit oversimplified because it has to, to try to get this into the time that we have. But it's important that that you see this, this conspiracy that has been going on, this satanic conspiracy from the very beginning. Let's, let's move forward um, a few hundred more years to 1100 A.D. or so. This was the time of the Templars, the Knights Templar, or in some of the older manuscripts they were called the Knights Templars, and that's how I referred to them in, in my book in Route to Global Occupation, the Knights Templars. They became a special order within the Catholic Church. In fact, they were under the special protection of the papacy. They eventually became the most powerful order of Roman Catholicism. They protected the pilgrims going to and from the Holy Land during the Crusades. In fact, they led the Crusades. The Crusades of the Middle Ages were led by the Templars. Well, they had proven themselves, and people really believed they were a special righteous order. And so many of the nobles of Europe willed their estates over to the Templars. And over the course of about 200 years, they became filthy rich. And along the way, they became really the first bankers of Europe. And also along the way, they came across some of these Gnostic secret societies and teachings and began to embrace them, believing this was a superior knowledge. And by the early 1300s, it became known, and they became held in suspicion by some people, that that they were actually a secret Luciferic cult masquerading as a Christian order. And so King Philip IV of France feeling threatened by their influence and power. He may have had ulterior motives, but he launched an investigation into the Templars. And it was alleged that some torture went on as the Templars were called up to testify, Uh, but there were certain confessions that, yes, indeed, they were a Luciferic cult. Um, 
But because there was some alleged torture involved in this, uh, eventually Pope Clement V, who was the Pope at the time, who had protected the Templars through all these trials and investigations, over and over again he stood with them and defended them, but finally got to the point where so many people in Europe were beginning to get really upset, saying, you mean we gave all of our money up and this is a Luciferic cult? And so the Pope finally intervened and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have my own investigation, and there won't be any torture involved. And so dozens of Templars were uh, put on trial, were investigated, were questioned, and a number of them at that time did confess that, yes, in order to get into the order, they had to spit on the cross, they had to swear allegiance to Lucifer and do several other very diabolical acts that I won't even repeat here this morning. And at that point, uh, complete outrage resulted throughout Europe as this information got out. And so King Philip IV of France at that point felt an open door to go ahead and prosecute the Templars, which he did over the next few years. And eventually he burned the two top leaders of the Knights Templars uh, at the stake in Paris. He actually burned, them at the, burned at the stake. Jacques de Molay was one of them. And uh, that, by the way, is uh, the, the young men's Masonic organization, de Molay, uh, took its name from him. I'll make that connection in just a little bit here. So from that point on, um, the Templars had to go underground. In fact, they saw this coming. They saw the handwriting on the wall starting a few years before. So smartly, from their perspective, they went ahead and organized a few ultra-secret lodges so that if they had to go underground, they'd be able to continue on with, with their secret teachings. They formed a lodge in Stockholm, Edinburgh, Scotland, Naples, Italy, and one somewhere in Paris. And they also uh, established an enclave in Spain and Portugal, which became a major base for them as well. And so um, we know as a fact of history that right around the time these prosecutions were taking place that several ships sailed from northern France loaded with gold, silver, precious artifacts. I mean, in, today, in today's money, it would be tens of billions of dollars. And it's believed they went north to England and Scotland, which I am convinced that that took place. Uh, but there was also an element of Templars that went south, and they made their main home in Portugal for a time, and eventually from there set sail to South America, and their enclave ended up being in the area around Montevideo in Uruguay, where Uruguay, 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 Paraguay, and Argentina all come together. That area, that general area, uh, is where the, where the Templars... Uh, uh, a stronghold for them developed there. But going north, Scotland became a major hub in, in Edinburgh. And I'm sure many of you have heard of Roslyn Chapel and, and, and things like that. I don't have time to go into all that this morning. Uh, but they kept their secret teachings alive. But as far as the public was concerned, they were put to death. The public would have thought this is the end of the Templars but it really wasn't. They just went super secret underground. A couple hundred years later, the Protestant Reformation took place. And I believe what happened with the Templars was part of what began to brew behind the scenes that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. Between the opulence and the hypocrisy represented by the papacy and the false teachings, but also in people's minds what took place with the Templars. It made them wonder, if they're a Luciferic cult and they were the highest order of Catholicism, what's really going on within the papacy? And so this, this all fed into it and eventually led uh, to the Protestant Reformation. And uh, so how did the devil respond to that Reformation? that sought to reestablish the truth and faith in Christ, that we are saved through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Jesuit order was created by the Vatican. The purpose of the Jesuit order was to snuff out the Protestant Reformation, to do whatever it takes to do so. 
First, through education by trying to penetrate Europe's educational institutions, also using propaganda, political intrigue, and if necessary, assassinating people to put a stop to the Protestant Reformation. The Jesuits were viewed as a type of militant order on behalf of Catholicism, having sworn allegiance to the Pope himself. Now, it's interesting, while the Jesuits were active in Europe, they also made their way to the West eventually. And guess where their enclave ended up being? The United States, somebody said. That's one of the places, eventually. But South America, the area of Montevideo, the same place where the Templars had taken refuge in Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina, that area. Isn't that interesting that the Templars and the Jesuits ended up kind of in the, in the, in the same area? Um, the Jesuits did everything they could and caused a lot of havoc. They, they kind of lost the battle, but they continued on. They didn't give up. They made it into all the countries of Europe and eventually to the United States, as did Freemasonry. You see, the Templars, after a few hundred years, remember they had to go underground in the early 1300s, and they had to lay low for a time, but they felt that a few hundred years had now passed, and they they tested the waters, and they felt that the time was now ripe that they could once again resurface, but under a different name. And it would be under the name of Freemasonry in the British Isles. And so in 1717, I believe, is when the first Grand Lodge was established in London, England. And in the late 1700s, Freemasonry uh, followed many of the settlers over to the United States, not the pilgrims, the first, uh, the earliest people over here, but soon after that, Freemasonry realized that the new world was, there was a lot of potential there, and they wanted to be part of that. So let's start with the time period right around now the late 1700s. So from the time of the Grand Lodge being formed in London until 1776 was around 60 years or so, and this organization had really grown and prospered and become somewhat influential in political circles, but not as much as they wanted to be. And so in 1776... They launched a new super secret order known as the Illuminati, which probably everybody in here has heard of the Illuminati. It was an actual organization. I have documented it. It is spoken of in the historical writings of Freemasonry, and they embrace it as one of their own orders. If you look at Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry and and other uh, books, and again, I document that in, in my first book, In Route to Global Occupation. So... The Illuminati was founded by Adam Weishaupt in Bavaria, Germany. Uh, He happened to be a Jesuit, and he also happened to be a high-level Freemason. And um, he was an evil genius, basically. And in just 10 years' time that the Illuminati officially was in existence, it's, it's amazing how many political circles they were able to penetrate and come to dominate. And they also snookered in some Christian leaders who became convinced that this was a Christian order. That's how crafty Weishaupt was. Uh, he knew the Bible better than some of us here this morning, probably, and he, but he, he understood how he could twist it and and put on a front and not tell people the whole truth of what this really was all about, which was a Luciferic order. The term Illuminati came from the idea of these are the illuminated ones, the enlightened ones. They've been illuminated into the secret teachings of Lucifer. They're more brilliant than the rest of humanity because they get it. They understand that Lucifer is really God, and the God of the Christians, Adonai, is the God of darkness, and Lucifer is the God of light, who is warring on behalf of mankind against the God of the Christians and Jews, Adonai. That's, they, again, they flip the truth on its head, calling good evil and evil good in the, in the highest levels of the Illuminati. So these were Illuminized Freemasons. The Illuminati consisted of, of very high-level Freemasons. 
1782, when the Illuminati was at its peak, there was a very important meeting held in Europe called the Congress of Wilhelmsbad. And this is when the Rothschild banking family stepped onto the scene. Uh, They were a very ambitious uh, banking house in Frankfurt, Germany. They wanted to expand. And they saw that since Freemasonry already existed in a number of countries, they could maybe expand their banking influence through Freemasonry. The Freemasons, on the other hand, wanted to expand as well, and they needed money to be able to do that. So it was a marriage of convenience. And from 1782 on, the Rothschild family, as well as subsequent banking families that they allied themselves with, became allies of Freemasonry, and it became like one and the same thing. That was a huge moment in history, 1782. A few years after that, the Illuminati became exposed. Many of the Illuminists went underground. Some of them came under the special protection of some of the the nobles of, of Europe who were in on all of this. But it continued on, and George Washington actually stated that he had become aware of the dangerous and nefarious plans of the Illuminati and was aware of the fact that it had spread to the United States. Washington actually stated that. Now, of course, he was a Freemason as well, but not at the, at the level of where this was going on. So I believe, just like today, a lot of people involved in Freemasonry have no idea what this is really about at the higher levels, and that's the, the real tragedy in all of this. Moving, moving along, uh, the banking powers of Europe sought to gain control of the United States. Uh, the, the revolution here in the U.S. was a big blow to them because they thought they could use the, the new world to help build their empire. And they lost some of that um, in 1776, ironically the same year that the Illuminati was founded, uh, because of the revolution here in the United States. But the War of 1812 was largely about them trying to take that control back. And of course, it was unsuccessful. They lost. Then you had the Civil War days. Did you know that France and, to an extent, Britain financed, militarily helped finance both the South and the North during the Civil War? You say, why would they do that? Well, they were hoping that the U.S. would just implode on itself. They fueled the fire. To them, this was a a great thing to see the U.S. self-destruct from within because they felt that all the states, back then you only had state banks, you didn't have national banks, they felt that they could bankrupt the state banks and then sweep in afterwards and take them over. But Abraham Lincoln very wisely threw a wrench into things. He shored up these almost bankrupt national uh, uh, state banks by doing some things at the national level and issuing the greenback which made it much more difficult for the international bankers to come in and, and take over. And I believe that cost him his life. That was like the final straw. Uh, Booth, his assassin, uh, there was evidence that suggests that he was tied in with both the Jesuit order and the Freemasons who were in goods together on this. In fact, some of the writings of Lincoln, which you will not hear from anybody in the mass media today, he actually wrote strongly harsh words against the papacy and the Jesuit order and the Freemasons that he felt they were out to try to take his life. That is a fact. Um, and I did a, uh, an article on, on this maybe five or six years ago where I documented all of that. I'd have to go back and pull that information out. But it is there, and there are even books written on that subject, but it's been uh, brushed aside, swept under the rug, so to speak. But because of what Abe Lincoln did, it would take the, the international bankers another 50 years to get back to that same point, roughly. And that happened with the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913. The Rothschild family of Europe helped to finance the Rockefeller oil empire. They became wealthy in their own rights. The Rockefeller family did. And when you have tens of millions of dollars in one bank, it it doesn't take long before you basically own that bank or run it. And that's what happened. They took over Chase Bank, Citibank, uh, Manufacturers Hanover, which since has merged with, with other banks. These were all Rockefeller banks. 
that they put their enormous wealth in. And a lot of their wealth, as I said, they owed really to the Rothschilds of Europe. So there was a, a coming together of the European banking families and now a new era, a new generation of American banking families that originated. And this is the group that originated the Federal Reserve System, which is no more federal than Federal Express. This is a private institution. It really is. And the way it was constructed is that the, the regional, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York would, for all practical purposes, run the Federal Reserve. And so the member banks holding interest in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York would be the most powerful players. And the Class A stockholders in those banks were the real power holders and would, would make billions and billions of dollars that they began to pour into tax-exempt foundations, which were originated around that same time by the same people. And so that's where the Rockefellers began to put their money. And that led to the Rockefeller Foundations. They've got numerous foundations, the Carnegie Foundations, so on and so forth. Um, they did everything they could to begin to lay the groundwork in the United States to move us in the direction of an eventual global government, a new world order. Uh, which, by the way, that term has been used within Freemasonry for hundreds of years. That's where it comes from, the New World Order. And so shortly after the Federal Reserve was established, uh, you had World War I. And after World War I, the League of Nations was established with the same money, these influences behind the founding of the League of Nations. Then there was World War II, and the UN was created uh, the land upon which the UN is built was donated by the Rockefeller family. Now, I want to put a pause there and go back and pick up what was happening spiritually behind the scenes during this same period of time. During the 1800s, Freemasonry was very busy creating a lot of pseudo-Christian cults in America. The 1800s has been called the, dec the century of cults. More cults were created in the United States during that time than any other country in the world that I am aware of. And most of them professed Christianity on the surface, but underneath were something very different. So let me give you a few examples. The Mormon Church. Uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were both high-level Freemasons. That's one reason why the symbolism within Mormonism is so similar to the symbolism of Freemasonry. Well, they eventually had a parting of the ways, but a lot of similar teachings existing in the higher levels. Christian science, Masonic connection. The Theosophical Society, which ended up laying the groundwork for today's New Age movement, also Freemasons involved in, in leading that organization. Um, Helena Blavatsky, a Luciferian, uh, was one of the leaders of the Theosophical Society. She founded Lucifer Magazine. I actually reproduced one of the early publications, the front page of it, in, in my book, The New World Religion. Some of this stuff, seeing is believing. You have to actually see it. Uh, it it's just unbelievable how blatant some of this is. And that magazine existed for a long time, Lucifer Magazine. Um, Blavatsky also wrote the book, The Secret Doctrine. Very Luciferic, occultic. Years later, this would become the favorite book of Adolf Hitler. He kept a copy of it at his bedside with his notes scribbled in the margins. So Blavatsky ended up having a huge influence on the Nazi regime in Europe. So don't underestimate these occultists and, and the influence that they have behind the scenes, especially when... It's, you know, uh, this agenda is forwarded and pushed forward through the big money spending of some of the big banks and, and, and the Masonic order. Blavatsky, eventually, there, there were other leaders of the Theosophical Society. And uh, in the early 1900s, a lady by the name of Alice Bailey became the leader. Today, she is referred to as the mother of the New Age movement, Alice Bailey. She was a member of co-masonry. That's the female Masonic movement, which originated with the Grand Orient Masonic Lodge in France. Her husband, Foster Bailey, was also a Freemason. In fact, together the two of them were on the Masonic lecture circuit for a period of time. In 1922, she established Lucifer Publishing Company in New York. 
you say, do you have the proof of that? Yeah, I do. In my book, I put the title page of one of our first books, and right there on the title page, it says Lucifer Publishing Company, 135 North Broadway, New York City. Now, smartly, two years later, she changed the name to Lucis Trust. So it became a little more subtle, and that organization still exists today. So here you have a Luciferian, a trance channeler, writing occult books. Her husband said Alice would go into a room, go into a trance state, an altered state of consciousness, and come out three or four days later with a book completely finished. She would tap into her spirit guide, as she called him, Jual Kul, an actual demonic entity who would dictate to her and she would just write. So her writings, which are considered the occult classics of today, were literally dictated to her by demonic entities. It used to be you had to belong to a secret society just to get these books. Today you can get them in almost any bookstore. They've made a huge comeback. But Alice Bailey and her Theosophical Society and Lucifer Publishing Company, now known as Lucis Trust, who've been putting out all these materials, this is, again, this is where the New Age thinking came from. And, of course, this same thinking existed at the highest levels of Freemasonry from day one. But you can't keep this quiet forever. At some point, you have to go public with it if they're truly going to have a new world order. Also, around 1922, the Lucis Trust was actually instrumental in influencing some of the people who founded the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a very powerful organization promoting the globalist agenda. And under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a 33rd degree Mason himself, he commissioned a committee uh, called the Post-War Foreign Policy Committee. It had 14 people on it. Ten of them were members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and they were supposed to come up with a a post-World War II plan for a type of United Nations organization. So it is not unfair to say that the UN was really founded by the Council on Foreign Relations. That would be an accurate statement. At their founding convention in San Francisco, there were dozens of members of the Council on Foreign Relations there. They pretty much ran the show. And as I already mentioned, the Rockefellers, who were a main funder of the Council on Foreign Relations, donated the land for the building of the UN in New York. So you had this, you know, spiritual undertow of Luciferianism and occultism, but it worked hand in hand with political developments of the day. But most people not being aware of what's going on in the world politically was actually being driven by a false spirituality, a very dangerous occult thinking. And nothing has changed. That's still how it is today. After World War II, uh, the World Council of Churches was started, got a lot of money from the Rockefeller Foundation. So it shouldn't surprise us that today it has become a very interfaith organization. You see, if you're going to have, to, if you're going to have a world government eventually, which is their, their end goal, their end game, How can you have a world government if you have all these different religions in the world believing different things? So somehow the religions of the world have to be brought together and unified. And that is the direction that the World Council of Churches is going in right today with a very strong Masonic influence that exists there. Then in 1954, you had the Bilderberg Organization established in Europe. Their goal was to unify Europe through a common market, an economic unification that would eventually lead to a political unification, which was to serve as a model for the coming world government based upon regionalism. In 1968, the Club of Rome was founded, and they would oversee this regionalization of the world, dividing the world into economic trading blocks that would eventually become political blocks and then unified into a world government system. Then George Bush Sr., H.W., started talking about the New World Order. You old-timers remember that very well, right? About 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, and people thought, wow, this is for real. This is now beginning to go public. And, um, and he, he didn't mention it just once or twice, dozens of times in his speeches. That was not by accident. That was by design. This was telegraphing the secret society people out there that our time is now at hand. We're going to begin moving forward with this plan. We're, we're large in numbers. 
So throughout the decade of the 90s, uh, this agenda began to move forward at a fevered pitch, still largely behind the scenes, but with much more money and numbers behind it. And it was around that, that time, mid-late 80s, uh, that I was invited to join the World Constitutional Parliament Association that I don't have time to go into, but a lot was going on behind the scenes during this time and, and during the Clinton administration then. And of course, that brings us up to the year 2000. The year 2000 was to be, represent a public launching of the One World Agenda. They felt that they would have enough numbers, people in the world favoring their agenda, that they could begin to come out into the open more at that time. And that happened. Uh, between the late, the last week of August and the first two weeks of September, three unprecedented meetings were held, all of them in New York City, one involving the religious leaders of the world, one involving the political, the heads of state of the world, and another one dealing with the economic side of this. This was the first time in at least post-flood history that we know of where all the top leaders of the world came together in one city to promote this globalist agenda. It got very little media coverage, although they did cover the heads of state meeting, but not really telling people what the meeting was really all about, to ratify the international treaties under the UN. Uh, a few months later, a couple months later, November 4th and 5th of the year 2000, the Pope held a special meeting in Italy to which he invited over 5,000 members of parliaments from all the nations of the world. And they unofficially called it a parliament of the world's, I mean, um, a, a world parliament, a meeting of the world parliament, because so many members of parliaments were at this meeting. And they continue this progression of events that was started in New York a couple of months earlier. That meeting got zero media coverage except for Zenit News Agency that reported on it, and that's how we found out about it. It's probably the most important event of the year 2000. Most people don't even know what happened at the Vatican, promoting the new world order, this coming new world order. Then we had 9-11, not long after that, and that was a, 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 there was a huge power play involved in that, encroaching upon the freedoms of the American people. So today you have grandmas being searched going through airports while terrorists brazenly walk across our southern border unchecked. Any knucklehead, excuse me, you would think could see that something is wrong here when you think about it, to just let people walk in over the southern border. But if we go through an airport, which we're going to do later this week, you know, everything you go through. Um, so we lost a lot of our freedoms in the aftermath of 9-11. And our federal government will take every opportunity they have to take one more step in that direction. During the last two years of George W.'s administration, it's, it's, it's almost as if he, he gave up. Uh, he, he was more of a conservative president than a liberal, and he was kind of on the fence on a lot of things, but it's as if the last two years, things just began to happen. It didn't wait till the Obama administration. It actually began during the Bush administration. But then under Obama, things really accelerated. And then that led to a, a sort of unexpected backlash, and Trump got in, and he actually began to undo some of the things that the globalists had put in place. They weren't very happy about that. <laughs> and we all know what happened. And, and so now uh, Biden is in, and we're in a free fall. The New World Order is making progress on every end. We'll see what happens in the upcoming elections, if we make it to the elections, which I sincerely hope that we do, and hopefully there won't be major manipulation of the elections, and we'll see what happens. Only God knows. Uh, but that's where we're, where we're at now, a very critical time in American history. And I believe God is wanting to see if the American people truly repent and follow him, or if they're going to fall for this big deception and go right along with it. Uh, God can do anything he wants. He can intervene. We saw what he did with Nineveh, right? Uh, Jonah didn't want to prophesy against Nineveh because he was afraid if he did, maybe God in his mercy would relent, and, and sure enough, he did. That could still happen in the United States. It doesn't look as if it will, but it could. 
And so this year, I believe, is the most important year in world history up to this point. We could have said the same thing about the last election and the one before that, but there's more and more on the line as we get closer and closer to having our freedoms taken away from us. But I wanted you to understand this morning that this is a spiritual battle that we are in, and it's been going on for a long, long time, and it is coming to a climax. And I was going to share some more, uh, and this really gets controversial, but I've gone quite a while, so I'm, I'm going to choose to, to wrap up here. Um, I was, I, let me just mention this. Um, I do believe that all the talk in the media about extraterrestrials, extraterrestrials is for a reason, and that this is going to tie in somehow. And, and so just to summarize what I was going to share in more detail, imagine if all of a sudden on television you have an unfolding event where it looks like a large mothership is just hovering over a, a major city in the world. What kind of reaction would that draw from the people of the world? And one of two things could happen. If it's perceived, if the globalists say this is an evil force, we have to unify as humanity against this for the sake of our survival. Could you see how that could be used to bring the world together into a global system led by the Antichrist against a perceived enemy? Or if they say these are peaceful beings, they're intervening on Mother Earth because we're on the brink of destroying ourselves because of this Ukraine-Russia war that may turn into World War III, so they're intervening in this on behalf of mankind, and, and therefore we need to follow their lead because they're uh, more wise and more brilliant than, than we are. Either way, I could see how Satan could really manipulate something like this. And I don't believe that you've got programs like Skinwalker Ranch on the History Channel. And about every fourth program you watch on the History Channel now has to do with aliens and extraterrestrials. There's a reason for that. And you know it's happened once before in Genesis 6. And even after the flood, again, there were the Nephilim. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So I think this is going to play into it somehow. So that's just a brief summary of what, what I was going to share. But I just want to give you a heads up on that. Don't be surprised if we see some type of massive global event, very deceptive uh, at some point in the, in the future. And don't fall for the lie. If these beings actually exist, they're not highly evolved extraterrestrial beings from other planets. These are demonic entities that are manifesting themselves. And the only reason they'd be able to do so is because the involvement of humanity in the occult, that creates an invitation, it creates an open line for these beings to come through. And I believe that's what happened back during the day of, of, of Genesis 6. So many people on the planet were involved in the occult, invoking these occult powers that they finally were able to, to come and manifest. And I think we're, we're back to about that same point in human history. Well, as Paul clearly stresses in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, the Antichrist, who will ultimately head up this world system, will be no match for the king of kings. This is the good news. I always want to end with the good news. He writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It won't even be a contest. Thank God for the victory we as believers have in Christ Jesus. God does not want his human servants to dwell in fear over what is coming upon the earth. He wants us to trust and remain confident in him, resting in the fact that he is sovereign over the affairs of man and the universe and will have the final say. God will keep his promises on earth and through eternity as he has done in the past. So as we approach the final days of, of history, life as we know it, it is imperative that we as believers walk closely with the Lord and stay in his word on a daily basis in order to be discerning and to remain loyal and steadfast in him. 
So I'd like to close our time with a a few of my favorite passages from the word that that offer tremendous encouragement. And I've actually written these out and I keep them with me everywhere I go because you can imagine, you're here for an hour this morning. My wife and I deal with this almost 24-7, this information coming into us from all around the world now, from many credible sources we've established over the years. So we have to deal with a lot of heaviness and, and darkness constantly as researchers and every day I I come back to the word and start my day with the Lord knowing and reminding myself that he's more powerful than Satan and we need not fear so just a few of the passages you may want to write these down Um, of course Ephesians 6 10 to 13 which we've already read so important Um, 2 Timothy 1 7 For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That's a powerful passage. 1 Corinthians 16.13 tells us to be people of courage. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't cower against evil things going on in the world. James 1.12, this has become my life's verse. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see, we're going to get a great reward. We cannot even imagine the reward that God is going to give us for being faithful to him in these these dark times. Um, I'll tell you, I can't wait to receive my glorified body after everything, especially after five rounds of skin cancer in the last few years. I'm, I'm so over it. I'm, I'm ready to be with the Lord. That, that time will come. But this reminds us that God has a reward in store for each of us, but we need to persevere. Philippians 1, 20 and 21 I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Wow. What's the worst thing that Satan can do to us here? If we were put to death in this world, that's happening to some Christians in in Ukraine right now and in other parts of the world as well but they immediately step into eternity and receive their reward. Not a bad deal. Not. Romans 8, 35 to 39, reminds us that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And there's a whole list that's given there, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. Satan cannot destroy our souls. He can only do that if we allow ourselves to be deceived by him and go down that path. So we have to make a choice between God or Satan's lies. I love this passage, Daniel eleven thirty two, Referring to the end times, it says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he, the Antichrist, shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So even during dark times on earth, God's going to give us opportunities to do amazing things in his power. He will never abandon us, right? Jesus said, I will be with you always, even unto the end of this age. He will never leave us or forsake us till he takes us up to be with him. Finally, Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. God knows those who are his. And he is capable of spiritually protecting us and seeing us all the way through to eternity, regardless of what happens to our bodies in this world. Whether we reach the point where we are translated, receive our glorified bodies and we're alive, or if persecution comes to our country in the near future, like what's going on in Ukraine and China, where the church again is just really being pursued right now in in a way like we haven't seen in in a couple of decades in other parts of the world as well. So whether we face persecution and death or whether we stay alive till the Lord takes us up, we need not fear. But we need to keep things straight in our minds. 
we need to remember that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of God's world, of his realm, citizens of heaven, and that is ultimately our home. I just pray that God blesses every one of you here this morning and gives you new revelation through his word and insight that you would be spiritually strong in the days ahead, that you would not be afraid, that you would not cower when you see these things coming upon the world, but rather realize all the more God's word is true. These things that were prophesied, they're happening today. It's easier to believe in in the Lord today than ever before. It's hard for me to see how people cannot believe when you see all these prophecies being fulfilled before our very eyes. So take this message out to your loved ones, and may God use you to lead many to Christ to perform great exploits in these last days of human history. Amen.